0: have a seat, and please also uh, turn with me to what we read earlier on, it's Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, and I'll read verse 9 again, you can have a look at that, verse 9, Colossians 2, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Okay, now when it comes to the sermon in a, a, a church like ours, it's, a, it's the norm, it's commonplace for the minister, for the pastor to choose a book of the Bible, pick a book of the Bible, and to work through it sequentially. Okay, so it's the norm that the minister will work through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, that sort of thing. But it's also not... I suppose uncommon for churches like ours to have a sermon series on what is called doctrine. A sermon series on, let's say, a crucial or a fundamental belief that the church ascribes to or holds to. Now, we we did that about this time last year. Okay? But this time last year, we looked at father. I don't know if you can remember, that we looked at the attributes of God. And now this year, we are looking at the Son, looking at Jesus Christ. And if you have any triune understanding at all, I'm sure you should be able to guess where we might go next year. If we've looked at the Father and we're looking at the Son, then next year we might well come to the Holy Spirit. Well, for the time being, we are going through, we're in the midst of a sermon series where we are looking at the second person of the Trinity. We are looking at the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, we've looked at the work, haven't we? I mean, over the last couple of months... We've looked at the offices of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. We've seen the, the work that he's done in winning salvation for his people. Look to the work. Then last week, we kind of moved on a wee bit. We've begun to look at the natures of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the human nature of Jesus. Well, this week... What happens is we come to the other side of that coin, don't we? Because this week, this morning, we're continuing this series in doctrine. And we are going to come to the divine nature of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ is God. The divine nature of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going to be camping out. That's where we're going to be basing ourselves this morning. The divinity of Jesus. Okay, let's begin in earnest, okay? And let's look at our first heading. Let's consider simply the reality of uh, Jesus' divine nature. The reality of it. Okay, now we've all got different ways in which we like to unwind, don't we? Now some of you might like to, I don't know, you might like to relax by watching the TV. Some of you might like to relax by doing some form of exercise. Um, Well, for a while there, what I used to do was turn to really cheap novels for relaxation. And uh, one day, perhaps foolishly you might say, I picked up the Dan Brown book, The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code. Some of you, I'm sure, have read it yourselves. Now, The the Da Da Vinci Code's... What we say about the Da Vinci Code? The Da Vinci Code is quite a, an interesting book, let's say. I mean, it's made up. Okay, it's a novel, but it does deal with sort of large swathes of church history. And as part of the storyline to the book, the author, this guy Dan Brown, he suggests that in the 4th century... That all the sort of big dudes in the church, you know, all the sort of main guys in the church in the 4th century, they got together and they had this church council, this big church meeting, where they tried to sort of very hastily deify Jesus Christ. So the storyline in the book is that for 4 centuries after Jesus' death, the church thought that Jesus was just a man, but that at this council what happened was that all the church leaders thought, oh no, 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 okay, let's try and let's try and convince everyone it wasn't just a man that he was God as well right that's the Da Vinci Code that's the storyline of the book now it's wrong it's nonsense isn't it the Da Vinci Code is right in asserting that the church did get together for this huge big meeting in the 4th century did but the church got together not to try and impose some sort of belief on people. The church got together because the church was confronted by a heresy. The church was confronted by an error in regard to Jesus' divinity. Now, have you heard of the name Arius? Arius. Because you see, Arius was the source of this problem in the 4th century Arius was this guy this this minister if you like who was going about and he was teaching that Jesus was not the eternal son of God so Arius is travelling about place to place and he is saying, get this Arius is saying that sometime before God created the earth that God thought oh I know what I'll do I will create the sun Arius was going around saying that Jesus was a created being. And although he was he was subsequently booted out, he was kicked into touch by the church, what we see with him are errors. Errors beginning to appear about the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And let's not kid ourselves here. You see, mistakes about what we are talking about this morning, mistakes about Jesus' divinity, they're not just to be reserved for the pages of church history. Mistakes about Jesus being divine are very much a part of our present experience too, aren't they? I mean, think about the city that you live in. Think about London. You see, much of this city, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, is Muslim, isn't it? Now, what do they believe? They, they believe, we saw this, they, they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe he's God. Then take Mormons. Tell you what, take Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, they, they believe in Jesus. I mean, they'll say Jesus is God. But they're just like Arius. They make this massive error. They think that Jesus was created, that he was a created being. Now, do you see the point that we're making here? Errors and mistakes about Jesus' divine nature, they might vary in name, they might vary in form, but they are frequent. They span the centuries and they are as prevalent now as they were, I don't know, one thousand, two thousand years ago. Errors, prevalent errors. So, surely, that means one crucial thing for us in here this morning, okay? That means that because there's errors, we as Christians have to be very, very clear About what the Bible teaches us about Jesus' divinity, about His divine nature. Okay, we've got to know what the Bible says. So, sit back and um, get comfortable. Let's engage our minds and let's think about what scripture says. What does the Bible say about Jesus' divinity? What does the Bible say About Jesus' divine nature. You ready? What has scripture got to say about this? Deep breath. Scripture teaches of Jesus' self-perception, isn't it? I mean, scripture teaches us that Jesus understood himself to be God. Right? I mean, Jesus gave himself this really exalted divine title, didn't he? What was his favorite self-designation? It was the Son of Man, a divine title. What else? Well, Jesus claimed to be God. He said, I and my Father are one. What else did he say? He said, before Abraham was, I am. Then think about that episode, you know that famous episode of Mary and Joseph? And they're looking everywhere for for Jesus as a wee boy. And they find him in the temple. What do we hear there? Well again, we hear of Jesus' divine understanding. Even in his youth, where did he say he was? I, in my father's house. Jesus knew himself to be God. What else? Well, Scripture also teaches of Jesus' divine action, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus taught the crowds, and he did so with divine authority. Such authority that the crowds were always amazed by him. He also performed miracles. Not just miracles, miracles in his own divine power. And why did he perform these miracles? So that we, what is it? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. What's the next bit? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of God. You see? I mean, Scripture also teaches that Jesus' claim of divinity was the very reason that he was so opposed. Is the very reason that he was killed. Jesus was executed Precisely because he claimed to be God. Now think about this, think about the, the variety of New Testament authors that we've got. Think about the fact that with all these New Testament authors, we've, we've still got this unambiguous testimony, don't we? I mean, did Paul have anything to say about Jesus' divine nature? What about Romans 9-5, where he says that Christ is God? Overall. What about Peter? Did Peter have anything to say? Well, Peter said in Peter 1:1. Who does he say Jesus is? He says Jesus is God, God and Savior. What about John? Has John got anything to say about Jesus' divinity? Well, come on. What about the prologue to his gospel? In the beginning was the word. For was the Word, the Word was with God. Was He the Word? Was God. Everywhere you go in the Bible, everywhere you go in the Scripture, it is the same message. Not only is Jesus divine, Jesus always was and always will be God. And that is glorious, isn't it? And much, much more could be said about it. But we've got to get to the underlying question here, don't we? I mean, why bother with this? Why is this important? Why is this issue of the divine nature and especially the eternal divine nature? Why is this so important? We see we're bothering with this this morning because your eternal salvation is dependent upon what we are talking about here let me say that again your eternal salvation is dependent upon this why? well if Jesus was a created being. If Jesus is not eternally divine, then his work upon the cross is not eternally effective, is it? You see, only a limitless God could have withstood the wrath of the Father at the sin of mankind upon the cross. Only a limitless God could now eternally apply that achieved salvation to his people. Do you see it? I mean, do you see why the church must hold to the divinity of Jesus unshakably, unequivocally? It is because unless Jesus is an infinite and divine saviour, there ain't no infinite and eternal salvation through him. So we praise God this morning. And we praise him for the reality of Jesus' divine nature. The reality of Jesus' divine nature. Okay. Let's move on. Let's consider a second heading together. We've seen the reality of Jesus' divine nature. Secondly, let's consider the revelation of the Father in Jesus' divine nature. The revelation of the Father in Jesus' divine nature. Okay, so I was uh, reading about a bloke this week. Hope I get the guy's name right. I think it was Alec Gilbert. If I've got his name wrong, it doesn't matter. We're going with Alec Gilbert. Okay. Now, um, there seemed to be nothing particularly special about this guy, Alec Gilbert. He um, he lived what seemed to be a fairly ordinary life, I think for the most part, he drove a school bus for for decades, that was his job but from what I could make it from the story near the end of this guy's life, what Mr. Gilbert did was organise and arrange very carefully all his sort of personal belongings and his personal effects, okay and then just before I'd just when he died, when he passed away and his family went through these belongings what they found was that Mr Gilbert wasn't actually all that ordinary after all so his family went through all his possessions and they found out that Mr Gilbert had been a war hero now, unbeknownst to his nieces and his nephews, unbeknownst to his, his grandkids and his whole family this guy had fought in combat this guy had uh, received uh, bravery medals and he had chosen to reveal this in what was surely for the family quite a dramatic way. Well what we read in scripture is that God, our father, has done something very similar to that. Hasn't he? You see, God, our father has decided to unveil himself out of love. He has decided to reveal himself to humanity. And he has decided to do that in a couple of ways. Firstly, we see the sort of unveiling of what God is like in what's called general revelation. General revelation. This is where we see something of what God is like in the world around us. You know, we look at the oceans, the vastness of the oceans, the scale of mountain ranges, and we see something of God's power, something of his might, something of his wisdom in that, his general revelation. But secondly, God unveiled himself in what is called his special So that general revelation, his special revelation, this is where God reveals himself much more fully in scripture. This is where he reveals himself in the Bible. In his word, God reveals to us, to humanity, everything that we need to know about him for our salvation. You see, this is the point You see, the high point of this, the final point of the unveiling, the supreme revelation of the Father, it comes in the person of his Son. The final unveiling of the Father comes in his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Because Jesus is divine, we can look to him and see what the Father is like. Because Jesus is divine, we look to Jesus and we see what the Father is like. Colossians 1, what is it? Colossians one fifteen. Jesus is the, he's the image of the invisible God. Or what about Hebrews one? Three who's Jesus? Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the exact representation of God, exact representation of the Father. Because Jesus is divine, because he's got this divine nature, what he does for us is he unpacks for us, He narrates. He explains to us, to humanity, what God the Father is like. When we look at Jesus, we see the Father. Now, okay, great. But do you see the implication of that? Do you grasp the implication of that? If God the Father reveals Himself through the Son, that means that we can come to know the Father through the Son. You know, if we know Jesus Christ, if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then through that relationship we come into fellowship With God most high, we come into fellowship with God, the Father. I mean, Jesus Christ said that himself, didn't he? You know, that famous verse that we all know, I'm sure, where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. What's the next bit? No one comes to the Father except through me. Because Jesus Christ is divine, the Father isn't just seen, he can be known through Christ. Now, can I ask you this morning, do you have what we're talking about there? I mean, personally, as you sit in your seat there this morning, do you have that relationship with Jesus Christ that leads to the Father? I mean, do do you have that? You see, to know Christ, we have to first acknowledge what we are looking at this morning. To know Christ, we have to acknowledge that Christ is God. That he is divine. We have to then accept what he has done for us on the cross and rising from the grave. We have to confess our sin and we have to place our trust in him. Now, have you done that? I'm serious. I'm asking you. This morning in church, do you sit there as someone who is saved? Because if not, understand this. If you're not saved, understand that a denial of the divinity of Jesus Christ it leads only to condemnation from God. I'll say that again. Please hear that. A denial of the divinity of Jesus Christ. It leads only to condemnation from God. What's a basis for saying that? John 3.18 says, Whoever does not believe stands condemned... Already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Friend, I would, I would say to you this morning, please permit and allow yourself to be moved from that place of condemnation. I mean, this morning, what is it? 8th of December 2013 allow this morning to be etched forever in eternity as the day that you move from condemnation allow Jesus Christ to be Lord of your soul and come to know the Father come to know God the Father through Jesus Christ The Son. We see secondly the revelation of the Father in Jesus' divine nature. Okay. Let's consider our third, our final point together this morning. Okay. Let's consider the response of the people of God to Jesus' divine nature. Okay. The response of the people of God. The response. So we've seen something of the reality of Jesus' divine nature that Scripture teaches unquestionably of the eternality, if that's a word, of Jesus' divine nature. Then we've seen that great implication of that, that we can know God the Father through Jesus. Okay, given those truths that we've seen, how do you react? How should you and I react? What is the necessary response from the people of God to Jesus' divine nature? Okay, I, I guess we can sum it up in one word, couldn't we? How do we react to Jesus' divine nature? As Christians, we must worship. That's what we must do. Our necessary response to the divine nature is to worship Him. And you see, that's the problem with the Mormon teaching in Jesus Christ, isn't it? I mean, it it surely is. I mean, it's, it's the problem that the Jehovah's Witnesses or one of the great problems that the Jehovah's Witnesses have in their teachings of Jesus Christ because think about it if Jesus Christ is a created being even if that happened a long time ago if he's a created being then Jesus Christ does not warrant our praise if he's created he doesn't warrant our honour Because our worship must be reserved for God and God alone. But friends, we know, don't we, that Jesus Christ does deserve our praise. We know, don't we, that Jesus Christ deserves all the glory and all the worship. How do we know that? Well, again, because Scripture tells us that, doesn't it? You see, think about this. Unlike with Peter and Cornelius. Remember that? When Cornelius bowed before Peter. And unlike with Paul and Barnabas and Lystra, when the people there, they tried to sacrifice and worship Paul and Barnabas. Unlike in those situations, when people bowed to Jesus Christ, what happened? He accepted. He received their worship. You know, when the disciples were in the boat, do you remember that? When they cried out to Jesus Christ and worshiped, they said, truly, you are the Son of God. What did Jesus do? He accepted their worship. When the women fell on their face and they clasped Jesus' feet in worship, how did he react? He accepted their worship. When Thomas cried out that amazing call of uh, realization, when he cried out, My Lord and my God, how did Jesus react? He accepted the worship. He received the worship. Why did he do that? Why? Because worship is the appropriate response to the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Worship is the appropriate response to the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And of course, the great thing about this, the wonderful thing about this is you will know as a Christian, as there, there just ain't nothing greater on this earth than worshipping Jesus as the eternal Son of God, is there? I mean, there is nothing that so stirs our souls. There is nothing that so delights our hearts. There is nothing that gives His people such satisfaction as to worship Jesus Christ as the way, in the way that he ought to be worshipped, and the great, thing, of course, the reality is that this is how it shall be for you and I eternally, because Jesus' divine nature is unending. We will be able to delight. In worshipping our Saviour forever more. 10,000 years from now. We are still going to be able to delight in praising and worshipping Jesus Christ. And so I say to you this morning. Why don't we begin that worship afresh? why don't we do that let us renew our exaltation of and our affection for our divine saviour because yeah I know it's true that Jesus is our friend he is I know it's true that he is the Christ And I know that he is the Messiah. But hear this. Jesus Christ is first and foremost God. So let us worship him today. And let's worship him in the fullness of his deity. Let's pray.